if I could send out an infallible decree today, you know, sitting upon the chair of Ken Hensley, I would decree that Catholics just drop this from your vocabulary and never speak this way again. Never say that again. Oh, she's not a Catholic. She's a Christian. No. Or I'm not Christian, I'm Catholic, it, which is even worse. Right. Yeah, yeah that yeah, that that's true. The division between Catholicism and Protestantism is a division within Christianity. Hello, and welcome to another brilliantly conceived but questionably executed episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I'm Matt Swaim, along with my colleague Ken Hensley. We're with the Coming Home Network. Please come visit us at chnetwork.org. We're a network of people from all kinds of backgrounds who have either come into or come back to the Catholic Church or are at least considering the question. Uh, you can also check out our online community, community.chnetwork.org. I promise we'll be gentle if you come to us. No question is too stupid. Yes. Trust me, you can't ask questions as stupid as Ken and I did on our journeys. Ken, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing good, thanks. Good to see you. Yeah, and uh, in this series that we do called On the Journey, uh, we do a little bit of um, digging into our own stories. Uh, hopefully not just making arguments, but really kind of trying to get back into what our thought processes were on certain questions. And because mm-hmm. you and I are pretty open about our thought processes, I hope people realize we're pretty sympathetic to people who think things that we used to think. And nowhere am I more sympathetic than on the new series that we're starting today, which is understanding what was going on in the Reformation. Because I had so many different ideas, mostly impressions about what was going on in the Reformation. So if someone has some confusion about the whole Reformation question, I am your deepest mm-hmm. sympathetic compadre on that. So I'm sure you can probably you know, I noticed, say, the, say the same sort of I thing. Noticed, Matt, I, I noticed, Matt, that your sympathy goes up the more I agree with you, but you are sympathetic even even if I don't agree with you on everything. I think you just proved the and question. That's how it is. Yeah. Well, you know what? Okay, in the past... Our series here, it's not really a series, it's a show, On the Journey Show with Matt and Ken. Um, In the past, we did a series on Sola Scriptura, um, getting really to what I believe is the heart, uh, the foundational difference between Protestantism and Catholicism. We just finished doing a 17-week series that we titled Scripture, Tradition, and Magisterium, hitting at the same question, and we actually have not left the topic because this uh, series that we're doing now, which is going to be four weeks in length, um, is called What Was the Reformation and Why Did It Happen? So we're coming at the same basic issues. That is the same, the, the, the foundational question, what is it that lies between um, Catholicism and Protestantism? By asking that question, what was the Reformation? That is, in its essence, what was it? And why did it happen? And we're also going to be asking, why did it happen when it happened? I mean, why did it happen? Why did what happen happen in the early 16th century. So, but to back up, yeah, our show is about our stories. And um, this begins with a story as well. This begins with my story. I mean, most people watching may maybe know that before becoming Catholic, I was an evangelical Protestant for more than 20 years. Um, I was an ordained Protestant pastor for 11 of those years. 
And as you said, the word sympathy, it just comes out. I mean, my conversion was hard. My conversion was difficult. I, when I think of it, I like to say I broke a ton of glass coming into the church. Um, because of my background as a student, a seminarian, and then a pastor, um, becoming Catholic wasn't something that I could do quickly. It just wasn't. It was the result of intensive thought and struggle and prayer and argument and debate and the whole thing for more than four years. It involved my uh, needing to rethink my entire worldview as a Christian, really from the ground floor up. And because of that, Matt, on the one hand, it's hard for me to even talk about Catholicism and Protestantism without instinctively becoming an, an apologist. You know, I, I instinctively beginning to make the case for the Catholic Church. Um, at the same time, I can't think about Protestantism. I can't think about Protestants without affection for those that I still consider from the bottom of my heart to be my brothers and my sisters in Christ. Yeah, and for my and part— I know you feel the same I, way. I, I totally feel the same way. And for my part, um, I broke a lot of glass on the way into the church as well uh, because— you know, of, of my understanding of, of what the Reformation, or at least the spirit of the Reformation was. You know, I experienced a scandal in my own Nazarene church that led me to mm-hmm. mistrust, you know, kind of the polished evangelical mm-hmm. world mm-hmm. I had grown up in. It led me to want to reform, always reform. And eventually, mm-hmm. you know, as I rejected organized form of Protestantism after organized form of Protestantism, I, uh, at the bottom of it all, ended up in the Catholic Church, which, of course, scandalized all my friends who thought that I was mm-hmm. in there to break the <laughs> yeah. glass on purpose. Um, so, yeah, this is a this is a topic to which I'm yeah. deeply sympathetic. I also want to point out from the get-go, Ken, you and I are not doing, like, the Ken Burns series on the Reformation to try and unpack every single detail and nuance. This is not going to be a pure history section no, 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 of, no. of our On the Journey show. If you're looking for more stuff like pure history, there's a lot of books I know you could recommend. This one's helpful to me if you just want to know the nuts and bolts, Dermot McCullough's The Reformation. There's so many characters, so many places, so many issues Mm -hmm. doctrinally. So we're really trying to get to, more than anything else, the overarching ideas that were the big ticket items in the Reformation. Yeah. Yeah. And and I'm glad you've you've given that proviso as we enter into this. Okay. Um, Let me begin here. Catholic philosopher Peter Kraft um, has referred to the division that occurred at the time of the Reformation as, and I quote him now, the most serious division in the history of Christianity. This is what he writes. The divisions that make the Christian church visibly many rather than one are scandalous and intolerable. If you don't agree with that statement, then either you don't believe the Bible is the revelation of God's own mind or else you can't read. The most serious division today, the most serious division in history is the division between Catholics and Protestants. Um, It certainly was, and it remains so. And I want to point out right away, the Catholic Church acknowledges that the Church is not without blame for the fracturing of Christ's one visible Church that took place in the early 16th century. In fact, whatever blame can be assigned for what happened back then, both directions, it certainly is not the fault of the majority of Protestants alive today And Catholics, again, are encouraged, in fact, commanded to accept them as fellow Christians. Quoting now from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, this is from the Catechism, paragraphs 816 through 818, we read, In this one and only Church of God, from its beginning, from its very beginnings, there arose certain rifts. So there were divisions in certain, along the way. 
But in subsequent centuries, much more serious divisions appeared and large communities became separated from full communion with the Catholic Church, for which often enough men on both sides were to blame. However, one cannot charge with the sin of the separation those who at present are born into these communities, that is, these separated communities, Protestant churches he's referring to, and the Orthodox churches as well. And in them, okay, let me say that again. One cannot charge with the sin of the separation those who at present are born into these communities and in them are brought up in the faith of Christ and the Catholic Church accepts them with respect and affection as brothers. I have no doubt in my mind, I'm sure the same is true of you, I have no doubt that I was a Christian for those 20 years before I became Catholic when I was a Protestant, that I knew Christ. I was a Christian. I have no doubt about that. And I have no doubt about the the fact that the Spirit of God was active and present in the churches that I attended, the Christians in the lives of the, the fellow Christians that I knew, in the churches that I pastored during those 20 years. And our catechism, Matt, agrees with this as well. So I want to lay this down as another primary uh, foundational idea. The Catholic Church agrees with what I've just said. In fact, in the very next paragraph of the Catechism, we read this. This is paragraph 819. Christ uses these churches and ecclesial communities as means of salvation. He's talking now about the churches that exist having broken away from the Catholic Church, um, uh, the churches that exist now. These churches and ecclesial communities Christ uses as means of salvation, whose power derives from the fullness of grace and truth that Christ has entrusted to the Catholic Church. And so, with with much re, uh, um, affection and with much respect, and yet remembering at the same time the seriousness of this division that took place in the early 16th century at the time of the Protestant Reformation, what we want to do in this short series is ask the question, what was the Reformation? Again, not in all of its detail, but at its heart, what was it? And why did it happen? And there are so many questions you raised just by reading those paragraphs from the Catechism, including why, is, why does the Catholic Church make a mm-hmm. distinction between churches and ecclesial communities? That's a whole bag of chips that we can maybe open at a later date. But uh, occasionally we'll get into mm-hmm. um, various conversations in the Coming Home Network online community and in our conversations mm-hmm. with people who are coming to us. Uh, and we'll start talking about how we feel about the word Protestant. And I don't know about you, Ken, but I as an evangelical Christian, you know, until my mid-20s, never used the word Protestant on myself. A Protestant was somebody in a textbook Mm. as far as I was concerned. I was a Christian. You know, that's what I considered myself. Um, And it also kind of gets to the heart of how we at the Coming Home Network and what we do is a little bit unique uh, within Christianity because here you and I are people who knew in our hearts that we had to come into full communion with the Catholic Church. But we also know without a doubt that the Holy Spirit was alive and active mm-hmm. in the communities that we came from. So, again, this is this is part of the sympathy that, that is going into this mm-hmm. conversation on what happened in the Reformation. Okay, the first question, which is the one that we're going to address today, is the question of uh, was. You know, what, what was the Reformation? What the Reformation was? And I want to begin with Catholic historian Hilaire Belloc. Um, a book that he wrote in 1938 with the title, The Great Heresies. I mean, in that book, he talks about Arianism. He talks about the, he he talks about several groups, but he also has some chapters on the Reformation and Protestantism. And he asked the question that we're asking here, what was the Reformation? uh, Meaning, what was, what exactly was it all about? 
And Belloc begins by emphasizing what the Reformation was not. First of all, he says, the Reformation was not about the introduction of a new religion. Okay? It wasn't about the creation of a new religion as we have with Islam, for instance, in the 7th century. And he wants to emphasize this. No, the division that exists between Catholicism and Protestantism is a division within Christianity. So we're not talking about a new religion. And if I can, I'd like to insert a thought here at this point, and I guess an admonition. I hear, this is something that kind of has stunned me since becoming Catholic, although I've been Catholic now 25 years. I hear Catholics speak at times as though Protestants are members of a different religion. You'll, you'll hear someone say, oh, he isn't, um, you know, he belongs to a different religion. He's a Baptist. And, and even worse than that, I mean, this is the one that just makes me grit my teeth. I've heard people say things, I've heard Catholics say things like, oh, she's not a Catholic, she's a Christian. <laughs> and if I could, I mean, if I could, if I could send out an infallible decree today, you know, sitting upon the chair of Ken Hensley, I would decree that Catholics just drop this from your vocabulary and never speak this way again. Never say that again. Oh, she's not a Catholic. She's a Christian. No. Or I'm not Christian, I'm Catholic, it, which is even worse, right? Yeah, yeah, that, yeah that, that's true. The division between Catholicism and Protestantism is a division within Christianity. Catholicism is Christianity. In fact, what we believe as Catholics is simply that Catholicism is authentic, historic Christianity. So please, yeah, never say again, oh, no, I'm not a Christian, I'm a Catholic, and don't say it the other way around either. And that goes for you, Matt. All right. I mean, I'm, I'm not a... <laughs> I don't do that anyway, <laughs> I'm not, but uh, I cringe every time someone someone says that in my presence. And sometimes I try and make the little yeah. correction, especially some of my friends from my Protestant world yeah. who are like, hey, you used to be Christian, now you're Catholic. I'm like, no, I went back to like the OG Christianity, uh, if you must know, you know, so yes. let's be clear. Okay, so Belloc begins then by insisting two things. Well, first, he insists that the Reformation was not about the introduction, the creation of a new religion. But second... He also insists that the Reformation, while it involved doctrinal disputes of various kinds, he insists that it was not at its heart a doctrinal dispute. Okay, well, if the Reformation was not about a new religion coming into existence, and if the Reformation was not essentially about a doctrinal dispute, what was it? Um, let me read how Belloc answers the question, and then we'll simplify and elaborate. Here's Belloc. It was not a particular movement, but a general one. That is, it did not propound a particular heresy, and I would add, or several heresies, which could be debated and exploded, condemned by the authority of the church, as had hitherto been every other heresy or heretical movement. Rather did it, that is Protestantism, rather did it create a certain separate moral atmosphere, which we still call Protestantism. Okay, Rather did it create a certain separate moral atmosphere, which we still call Protestantism. The disruption it had produced remained, and the main principle, okay, now here's the key, that is, he's going to describe now what this moral atmosphere amounts to. The main principle, reaction against a united spiritual authority, so continued in vigor as both to break up our European civilization in the West and to launch at last a general doubt spreading more and more widely. So to put this in fewer words, according to Belloc, the Reformation was a general movement that created a moral atmosphere, which he characterizes as a reaction against united spiritual authority. Um, at its heart then, 
saying it in other words, the Reformation, this is what it was at its heart. It was a revolt against the very idea that there existed on earth a united spiritual authority. And in particular, that the Catholic Church represented that united spiritual authority. It, it was a revolt against that idea. That's what it was. Yeah, and this is so important to understand, uh, not only for Protestantism in terms of like how it plays out with the various denominational and confessional realities that spring up from the 16th mm -hmm. century on, but also for kind of understanding how the United States became a, a country. You know, these are there are a lot of questions at stake oh, yes. in this. And yeah. I'm just imagining, like, if you were Protestantism and you were in a job interview, and at the end of the interview they say to you, you know, okay, Protestantism, so you want this job, what would you say are your greatest strengths? They would probably say, well, we uh, we have we serve as a reaction against uh, a check and balance against the United Spiritual Authority. And then if the interviewer mm -hmm, were to say, mm -hmm. okay, Protestantism, that sounds good. What's your greatest weakness? It's reaction against the United Spiritual Authority, <laughs> right? I mean, essentially, it's its greatest strength. It's its greatest weakness. It's the reason so many people are attracted to it, but it's the reason that it doesn't hold together. Um, so there are a lot well, of things going on Well, and that's why, that. you know, I... Yeah, I, I, you've touched on it. I kind of, I purposely skipped over that last phrase in Belloc's quote, which I think is very powerful, wh where he talks about the fact that it led to the breakup of European civilization in the West. And then that last part, to launch at last a general doubt spreading more and more widely. That's what you're touching on, is the general doubt that comes in when you, when the reformers stood against the United Spiritual Authority and then found themselves standing on the Bible alone yeah. and therefore standing on their interpretation of the Bible alone and then all of a sudden two denominations in four and eight and 16 and a generalized doubt. But please, l let's hold on to that for later, okay? I want to focus right now on, on his central definition that the Reformation is not about a new religion. It's not even about a, a doctrinal dispute. It's about, the, it's about a moral atmosphere that was created that is characterized by a reaction against their existing, a united spiritual authority. I think we can see this clearly in the lives of the various reformers. For instance, if you pick up John Calvin's most important work, his Institutes of the Christian Religion, which is his basic, basically his systematic theology, you don't get the impression, you just pick it up and read it, you don't get the impression that Calvin is simply disputing some of the doctrines of the Catholic Church, that there are some improvements, if you will, that he would like to make to Catholic theology. You don't get that impression. The impression you get by reading it, that is the tone of it, the language of it, the whole feel of it, you get the impression that Calvin has taken his Bible, gone into his study, and come forth with his own total vision of Christianity, his own fresh new vision you get the impression that Catholicism is something that is being rejected outright. It's not a matter of him disputing one or two doctrines. It's a matter of him rejecting Catholicism in toto. There's this sense that he's reinventing the wheel. You get that feeling that he's starting over, that he's returning to the original sources, that is scripture and the early fathers. He's wanting to take a fresh look at Christian theology in total again. And when he speaks of the Catholic Church, he doesn't speak of her errors, her theological errors, so much as her evils. I mean, you know, the whole thing is being thrown out, okay? In other words, then, as I tie this into what Belloc said, what comes through when you read John Calvin's Institutes is definitely a certain moral atmosphere, which I think that Belloc accurately uh, characterizes as a reaction against the idea that there exists on earth a united spiritual authority and 
God forbid, if there were a united spiritual authority, God forbid that it's the Catholic Church. That's what comes through. And the same thing with the life of Martin Luther. It's exactly the same. I mean, think about it like this. Luther begins by criticizing the sale of indulgences, you know, and the, you know, and the, and the haughty, um, fabulous lifestyle of the Pope, Pope Leo X at the time. That's where he begins. And then he goes on to criticizing the church's doctrine of justification. But as matters begin to heat up between he and the church, he seems to, at a certain point, have simply crossed a line a certain moral atmosphere begins to pervade everything that he writes. Suddenly, the Pope is the devil, the Antichrist. Um, priests are his henchmen. <laughs> you know, um, nuns and monks are commanded essentially by, by him to renounce their vows and to immediately leave the convents and leave the monasteries. The spiritual authority of the church is, at a certain point, is just rejected outright. Yeah, and this, thrown is, away. this is why I think it's important for Catholics who approach this question to understand that Protestantism isn't a thing. It is not a set of doctrines so much as it is, in many ways, a moral atmosphere. Because, you know, there are so many different mm -hmm. groups splitting off, so many different reformers. You know, some of them believe in single predestination. Some of them believe in double predestination. Some of them believe in faith alone, but not all of them believe in faith alone. Some of them you have to be rebaptized. Some of them believe you don't have to be baptized at all. There are a whole bunch of different things, all mm -hmm. guys, kinds of people doing what John Calvin did, going into their study and coming out with their unique total vision of Christianity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's the one thing that they have in common is this moral atmosphere of rejecting a united, visible church. So, yeah, yeah, and when we talk about this, yes, you've got Zwingli, you know, you've got the Anabaptists, you've got all kinds of A hundred different views on what, okay. the, what Holy Communion means. you got all that. Yeah. But now, here, here's the thing, is that we can perceive this same moral atmosphere in the attitudes of many Catholics as, as well. Um, these are the Catholics that are sometimes referred to as cafeteria Catholics, that is, the pick-and-choose Catholics. Um, these Catholics will oppose one, I mean, they do now, will oppose one or more of the Church's settled teachings, that's important, not opposed to some di di disciplinary issue or some idea. They will oppose one or more of the Church's settled, formally defined teachings on women in the priesthood, on the authority of the Pope, on abortion, on divorce, remarriage, whatever it, it may be. And for the most part, you know, it's, it's not as though that these people have rigorously studied the scriptural, the historical, the theological case that can be made for each of the church's positions, and have come and have answered those those arguments, answered that case. Their stand is a stand against the idea again of there being a united spiritual authority. You get the flavor, flavor, you get the sense in listening and reading that these are Catholics that just don't like being told in some kind of official and formal way what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false. They want freedom to decide for themselves what they think about these issues. Um, there's a certain moral atmosphere in their protests. And in essence, what they, I mean, the, the people are all on a spectrum. These are not all the same. But those are, that are the furthest out on the spectrum, they're essentially Protestants who, who, who love Catholicism, though, and want to remain Catholic. Well, this they're is Protestants why— who, who want to remain Catholic. Yeah, Protestants in pectore, perhaps, Same. but uh, still Catholics by nature of their baptism and, you know, confirmation and other things. Yeah. But, you know, this this is why I made the allusion earlier to this whole question of how the United States even comes to be a thing uh, and the, the role that Protestant, Protestantism plays mm -hmm. in how 
you know, the United States understands itself as a country. Uh, you know, G.K. Chesterton famously said when he came and visited the United States, uh, you know, many, many years ago, nearly a century ago, that, you know, in America, even the Catholics are Protestant, right? In some senses, we've kind of caught this mood uh, as, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people who yeah. are used to elected authorities and used to self-determination and used to pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps and, and all the other kinds of questions that are, you know, mm-hmm. baked mm-hmm. into the American cake. Uh, you know, you can't understand how the United States kind of comes into being unless you understand this. I mean, even the United States, which shakes off the shackles of... King George, who is not only the head of England, but also the head of the Church of England, right? So there's a lot yeah, going on yeah. there. Yeah, and when you think about it, you know, when you think about what you've just said, it, it just it just reveals again how countercultural Catholicism is here in America. You know, it, it, you're going against the whole spirit of independence and I decide for myself, democracy, the whole kind of thing. Okay, but this is what was at the heart then. This is what the Reformation was, put it that way. What was, this is what it was. It wasn't a dispute over doctrine that tore the church apart in the early 16th century, at least not essentially. It involved it, but not essentially. It was a dispute over the issue of authority. And the separation that occurred at that time that broke the church in two in the early 16th century, it was a separation essentially between those who continued to embrace the united spiritual authority of the Catholic Church and those who rejected that authority to stand with Luther, at least ostensibly, at least in their minds, upon the authority of Scripture alone. It was, at its heart, this is what it was, a division between those who stood with the authority of the church and those who rejected, well, rejected the very idea that Christ had established on earth a united spiritual authority, said, no, Christ gave us an inspired authoritative book. That's what he gave us. And that's what we stand upon. And, you know, and, I, you, you mentioned in here in your mm-hmm. notes, they wanted to stand with Luther on the authority of Scripture alone. That's about the only way that they stood with Luther, because as Luther himself would go on to lament, yeah, and like I know you we're going to say in later episodes yeah, yeah. what the fallout of that was, was not standing with Luther, well, it was actually, standing on Scripture alone and rejecting everybody else's particular take on what that meant. Well, I hope this makes you happy, Matt. But not in future episodes. We're going to talk about it right now. All right, okay? let's do it. Because right now, okay, Protestantism began, as you know, I know, everyone knows, it began immediately to take numerous forms, which we know about. Martin Luther began by saying, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils. In matters of faith, each Christian is his own pope and council. Within a very short time, in fact, within two years, Luther was complaining, there are as many sects and beliefs as there are heads. This fellow will have nothing to do with baptism. Another denies the sacrament, meaning the Eucharist. A third believes that there is another world between this and the last day. I'd like to know what that theology was, another world. Okay, some teach that Christ is not God. So there were some that were teaching that in the Reformation, during the Reformation. Some teach that Christ is not God. Some say this, some say that. There is no rustic so rude, that is no farmer out in his field, but that if he dreams or fancies anything, it must be the whisper of the Holy Spirit. He himself must be a prophet. So, you know, Luther is already mocking this kind of, um, well, I don't want to say it, well, this kind of charismania that's going on at the time where everyone's coming up with their own theology and any idea that pops into the head of a farmer, he thinks, wow, you know, the Holy Spirit just gave this to me. I mean, uh, apparently some of Luther's own students followed his example. That is, they took their stand on Scripture alone, and they wound up rejecting aspects of his teaching um, 
based on their own interpretations of Scripture. And here's another quote from Luther, where he complained, How many doctors have I made through preaching and writing? Now they say, Be off with you. Go off with you. Go to the devil. (laughs) Thus it must be. When we preach, they laugh. When we get angry and threaten them, they mock us, snap their fingers at us, and laugh into their sleeves. Luther, you must admit, one of the most colorful writers in the history of, of Christianity. I do um, love the uh, the Luther you know, insult generator online. I, I shoot that at you guys in the office from time to time. A clever yeah, man. The Luther insult generator. He knew, how to exp- <laughs> he knew how to express his displeasure, let's just say. Yeah, when he's angry at these students, when he tries to threaten them, what do they do? They mock him, they snap their fingers, and they laugh into their sleeves. Yeah. You know, so, you know, as we know, Protestantism began almost immediately to fragment. And it fragmented because of disagreements among the various reformers and the churches created by the reform, uh, by the Reformation. But as you mentioned a few m- minutes ago, in fact, I think you said these exact words, there was one thing that Protestants had in common. One thing. And, and, and it's this reaction against the idea that Christ established on earth a united spiritual authority and that the Catholic Church represents that authority. That's the thing they all had in common. And this is still the essence of the disagreement to, to, to this day. There are a great number of Protestant sects and denominations in the world today. Some of them count 30, 40,000 separate you know, organizations of one kind or another. And they differ with one another on a great number of theological issues, moral issues, issues about the way to do things and whatnot. But again, Matt, there's one thing that they have in common. I mean, there's one thing upon which they are in perfect agreement, all of these, and that it's, it's that the church is not, does have no authority. Jesus did not establish an authoritative church. The Catholic church is not that authoritative church. It has no authority over me. God has given me his word and scripture, inspired, infallible. God's given me the Holy Spirit. God has given me pastors and teachers to help me understand the Bible. What more is needed? Yeah, which and, makes me think immediately of that of that quotation from uh, from McKenzie and uh, Geisler. You know, the Bible, nothing more, nothing else, and nothing less. I mean, nothing less and nothing else is all that is necessary for faith and practice. Go on. Yeah, and just a word on that thirty thousand, forty thousand number. Some might say, well, if you want to go into formal denominational stuff, it's probably maybe closer to, you know, a few thousand less than that. Bear in mind, though, that. Uh, if you want to mark by organizations or uh, LLCs mm-hmm. or nonprofits or 501c3s mm-hmm. or whatever you want to have it, I mean, you may find yeah. a mega church in Reno, Nevada, that if you look at their website and their articles of faith, it has the exact same list of doctrines mm-hmm. as another independent mega church in Pensacola, mm-hmm. Florida. Mm-hmm. But those two yeah. are not part of the same ecclesial hierarchical structure so even if they believe the exact same thing pastor bob down there and pastor steve out here are not part of the same unified authoritative christian body um but you know what i'm 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 glad you make that point because i believe uh, that sometimes that 30 40 000 number is used in a way that is not really honest and what I mean by that is this, if you boil down how many doctrinal systems, how many systems of theology are held within the Protestant world, the number would be far, far, far less. I don't know what it would be, but it might even be in terms of essential doctrinal systems, it might, it might be 10 or 20 or 30. Um, 
uh, you know, and then, um, you know, permutations of these, you know, yeah, and so I think the 30, 40,000, yeah, the 30, 40,000 is simply saying that's how many independent structures there are. That is organizations that are out there functioning on their own that are not formally connected to, to each other in any way. But another way to express this, Matt, is to simply say that the foundation of the Protestant worldview is sola scriptura, which is what we said in our 11 episode series on sola scriptura. That's just another way of saying it. The foundation of Protestantism as a philosophical system, theological system, as a worldview, is sola scriptura, the belief that the Bible serves as the sole infallible rule of faith and practice for the individual believer and for the church as well. That this is what the Lord has given us is an inspired Bible. There is no church. There is no church that has authority. There is no united spiritual authority. This is how... This is really the evidence, I mean, the essence of how Protestants, evangelicals, non-Catholics think. And this is how I thought for many, many years. And for the most part, I confess, Matt, it wasn't because, I mean, it wasn't as a result of some rigorous, in-depth analysis that I had made of Protestantism and Catholicism as worldviews, comparing and contrasting their views of authority and whatnot. Um, For the most part, it was simply assumed because I had come to faith in Christ in a home Bible study led by evangelicals. Um, every Christian I knew thought this way. Every church I attended thought this way. The churches I was a pastor at thought this way. Um, this is simply how Christians think. And with that, Ken, uh, the whole idea of we're just going to come around to the, to the Bible and the Bible will tell us that Jesus died for our sins, right? And we have to confess mm-hmm those sins and let him be Lord of our life. Uh, That's a commonality. I mean, even Catholics believe that, right? (laughs) But uh, the the permutations and the formulations of of how that plays out in different things, bear in mind that I didn't realize there were doctrinal, like serious doctrinal differences within Christianity until I got to probably mid-high school and then college. Going to a Bible Mm -hmm. college was a big part of it, working at Family Christian Store and selling... Mm-hmm. different books from yeah, the prosperity books. gospel and the you know hardcore reformed guys and like holiness preachers mm-hmm. and having them all in the same bookstore mm-hmm. that's when i realized that these were differences up until that point ken i just thought we all essentially believe the same thing as christians it's just you went wherever you like the music and the preaching better right and i think a lot of christians yeah, and, and, have that general impression mm-hmm. a lot of christians who come to us uh it's because they had the idea that it was just you went where you felt fed and you heard the gospel preached, and suddenly they realized, oh, wait, there are deep and significant differences, even in my own town, among people who all say they believe that the Bible is the sole rule of faith. So, I mean, it could be a shocking revelation when yeah. you realize that there is actual doctrinal difference between these different subgroups of Christianity, these, these schools of thought within Protestantism. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I think I remember early on going into a bookstore, too, to, to get— a book on on justification, let's say, and then finding out there wasn't just one. But anyway, okay, we've looked at the question today, what was the Reformation? That is, what what was it at its heart, in its essence, what was it? Um, so let me state the question that we're going to move forward on now, and let me state it in a couple of ways. How did Protestants come to think like this? This is the, the, this is the interesting and important question that we're going to ask. What were the causes of the Reformation in the 16th century. 
What brought about the moral atmosphere that Hilaire Belloc describes as a reaction against united spiritual authority, this reaction that resulted in the breakup of European civilization in the West, this this, uh, atmosphere that led to a general doubt about the truth that spread more and more and more. How is it, let me put it this way, how is it that so many at that particular point in history came to react against the spiritual authority of the Catholic Church? Why did it happen? And why did it happen when it happened? These are the questions that we're going to ask beginning next week and pursue for several weeks in a row. And it's it's uh, really interesting and really fascinating. So I encourage those who are watching and listening to stay tuned. Yeah, you can't ask that many questions in a row right at the end of an episode, Ken. This is a cliffhanger. Why right? not? You, this, this is the cliffhanger. Well, this, well, this just shows that we're going to have to do a series out of this. Not an extended 50,000-part series. Yeah. But no, it's going to take a little just, time. Just three weeks. Just three weeks. So, yeah, dig in. In the meantime, we would love to hear from you and hear your own thoughts about how you processed this question or became even aware that uh, your understanding of the Reformation needed some filling out. Uh, please do visit us at chnetwork.org for lots of resources, but also come visit us in the online community. That is community.chnetwork.org. Ken and I hang out in there, and we mix it up and have jovial, yes. jovial exchanges. Ken, thank you so much. Talk to you next week. Yeah, I... I look forward to next week when we can dig into these questions. It's good to see you again, Matt. So long. Farewell. Alvita Zane. Good night. <laughs>